And this call of the Spirit to all of us today is this, to lead the kinds of lives that will evoke questions from those whom God places in our lives so that opportunities to share about the hope that is within us may abound even more every day. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Today we are continuing a message series on the Apostles' Creed that Pastor Richard began several weeks ago. Today we're going to focus on that line in the Creed that declares that Jesus ascended into heaven. In order to do this, I'm going to ask that you would turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 45 through 53 in your Bibles. If you did not bring Bibles with you this morning, uh, you may use one that is provided for you in the pew racks where you're sitting. This passage may be found beginning on page 1644. While you are finding your place, let me provide us with some background information about our text. Now, my sense is this. The ascension of Jesus is not something that regularly grabs our attention. We spend quite a bit more time considering Jesus' birth and teachings and certainly his sacrificial death and resurrection, but his ascension doesn't seem to show up on the radar screen in quite the same way. Now, it hasn't always been that way. In the old church liturgical calendar, there's an Ascension Sunday that falls every year between Easter and Pentecost. And if you look at the history of Christian art, you can see depictions of the Ascension quite frequently. Paintings from Europe and Asia and Africa and other forms of art have depicted what it must have been like to be there. In all these works of art, you'll see a number of things that are, that, that, that are contained in all of them, but one of them is obviously the fact that Jesus' disciples were gathered around him when he was taken up. And you know, I look at those pictures and sometimes I begin to wonder, wow, what would it have really looked like to see Jesus fly up into the air? And sometimes I wonder, you know, what did their faces look like? during all this, and I think I've got it. It probably looks something like this. Right? Wow. It's fascinating to consider what it must have been like to, to be there. But as you can imagine, this, this kind of speculation, it also is the source of everything from cartoonish silliness and even doubt. So skeptics have asked, now come on. Really? A human body being transported by itself into the air and then disappearing? Well, that's impossible. Interestingly, a few years ago, a Christian astronomer named uh, Hugh Ross, he wrote a book called Beyond the Cosmos, where he states that according to modern particle physics and string theory, that God potentially operates on a minimum of 11 different dimensions of space and time. Dimensions that are all around us. But we rarely perceive them except when we run across a, a passage in the Bible that sounds something like this. Matthew 18. Whenever two or three are gathered there 
to gather together in my name, so I am with you. Wow. Or John 20. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be among you. I mean, in the four-dimensional world which we normally perceive, people do not normally pass through locked doors, right? Right. But what if God operates beyond the height, the depth, and the width that we know? What if heaven is just another dimension of reality all around us, only we just can't sense it right now? Maybe in the ascension, God the Father just took God the Son into a different dimension of space and time, a place where he now sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Well, as much fun as it might be to speculate about all the physics of this thing, that's not what I'd like the focus of our time together to be this morning. What I do want us to see and to examine is what we absolutely do know from the Word of God as it is revealed to us in Luke chapter 24, verses 45 through 53. So if you would, follow along with me now as I read this for us. Then Jesus opened their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. May the Lord God bless to us this reading of a portion of his holy word. Let me read that last verse for us once again, verse 53. Luke says, and they stayed continually in the temple, praising God. Let me see if I can put that another way. Luke says that right after the ascension of Jesus, his followers had this habit. They had this habit of coming together in a regular fashion to praise God in the temple. This was part of their routine. It was part of the rhythm of their lives, if you will. Now, interestingly, we know from the second half of Luke's writings, the book of Acts, that those early Christians were eventually ejected from the temple. And they were never allowed to return. In addition to being ejected from the temple, they were also fearful of gathering in any open space and in large numbers for fear of persecution. Now, friends, can you imagine what it would feel like for all of us if we knew when we were coming here this morning that either armed gangs or even police We're waiting for us out in the street to stop us and maybe even throw us into jail if we dared come into this worship space to praise God together. I dare say that we would be pretty upset. It would be a pretty tough thing to handle. So you and I might ask, with this type of pain 
and all the disruption that these early disciples were evidently feeling, how in the world did these early Christians sustain themselves and even grow exponentially for the next several years as they fulfilled God's call to reach the world around them with the message of Jesus Christ? Those early Christians adopted a whole new set of other habits. Habits that were modeled for them by Jesus himself. And these habits led these early followers of Christ to live questionable lives. That's right, questionable lives. Now you might ask, what were they doing that was so questionable? Well, it must have been something because Peter says in the letter of 1 Peter, he says, writing to those Christians, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior, read your good habits, may be ashamed of their slander. Now what in the world were these Christians doing that was making their Roman neighbors take notice and ask questions? Well, we know from records from that period, we know some of these things, and it looked like this. They, left, they, they rescued babies that were left out to die in the elements, infanticide. They fed the poor. Noble men and noble women embraced slaves. They buried bodies that had been left out on the street because of disease. They buried these bodies for these families and had a ceremony for them. They started hospitals. They promoted healthy relationships between the sexes and within families. And they welcomed all strangers regardless of socioeconomic background. Their conduct raised such an insatiable curiosity among the Romans that the Roman emperor during that time, Emperor Julian, he launched a hostile campaign led by his priests to outlove the Christians with free government handouts. No Snickers, none. I don't want to hear that. The campaign failed, and the Christians continued to increase such that by the year <coughs> 365, a full 60% of Roman citizens identified themselves as Christians. What incredible growth. So here's the thing. Many church leaders today across the Western world are wondering whether we as the church have entered back into a time very much like that of the early church, where hostility and misunderstanding are the name of the game from our surrounding culture. And habits that used to work to attract people to the Christian faith, well, frankly, they don't work so well anymore. I'm talking about habits like Sunday morning worship attendance, Sunday school, and pursuing safety. Demographers tell us that in every measurable category, church participation is on the decline. Why is this? Maybe it's because, for the most part, you and I are not living questionable lives. 
maybe we have become predictable and mundane. I sometimes wonder myself whether my life is practically any different from those around me. And you know, people are watching. The question for us is this, are we ourselves on an adventure with Christ, an adventure that we can invite others into as well? This morning, I want to turn us back to Luke chapter 24 and take a look at the very last portion of Jesus' earthly adventure with his followers. And I want us to see if there are some other habits, habits that Jesus has given us, habits that maybe are not now a part of our routine, habits that are inherent in the gospel itself, habits that will sustain us for the journey ahead and will guide us to become an adventurous, intriguing, and joyous presence in the life of others. Several authors have written recently about this idea of embodying the habits of Jesus. Uh, one of these is an Australian named Michael Frost. He's recently, recently released a book called Surprise the World, The Five Habits of Highly Missional People. Frost proposes uh, the acronym BELLS as a way to remember some of these habits of Jesus. And I want to use that acronym this morning as we look back now uh, to Luke 24. So the first letter in BELLS obviously is B, and it stands for BLESS. And the habit... Uh, that is proposed is uh, to bless three people each week. At least one of them is not a member of my church. In Luke 24, 50 through 51, it says this. When Jesus had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he did what? He blessed them. And then it repeats. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Now you all know, you've studied the life of Jesus. Jesus was in the habit of doing what? Of blessing people. He blessed children. He blessed older folks. He blessed those who were hurting, those who were ill. And in this very last act before being taken away, he blessed those who were around him one more time. Now one meaning of the word bless is, is this. It is to add strength to the arm of another. This refers to anything that relieves a burden in life or helps people breathe more easily. Blessing can come in many forms, but here are at least three. And they're words of affirmation, acts of kindness, and gifts. Now, I wish I had more time to get into some of the details and the how-tos of these different habits this morning, but here's the thing. On July 31st and August 7th, I'm going to teach a two-week chapel series during the Sunday school hour down in Harper Chapel, where I'm going to be getting into this type of stuff and some other things uh, that have to do with missional living. So if you're interested in any of this at all, please come be a part of that experience. Again, during the Sunday school hour on July 31st and August 7th. In the meantime, the idea here is to develop a rhythm of giving and of time spending and affirmation that fosters a spirit of generosity within us. And when we model generosity within us, you know what? We are mirroring the very nature of God. And this habit will alert others to God's reign in our lives. The second habit is eat, one in which I am very fond. Eat. 
as in I will eat with three people this week, at least one of whom is not a member of my church. Earlier in Luke 24, in verses 30 through 31, it says that when Jesus was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Now we all know this about Jesus as well. In addition to this habit of blessing people constantly, he was also in the habit of sharing the table with a vast array of different types of folks as well. And as he did this, inevitably he would reveal something about himself, both to those who believed in him and followed him and those who did not believe also. His followers in the early church, they, they picked up this habit because the invitation to share a table is profoundly meaningful in every culture. And it communicates love and acceptance. At the table we share stories, stories about our lives, our hopes, our fears, our disappointments. People open up to one another. And we ourselves can open up and share the same kinds of things, even our faith in Jesus. The third habit is listen. That's the L there, listen. As in I will spend at least one period of the week listening for the Spirit's voice. Now for time's sake, once again, I'm going to have to kind of skip over the details of this one. But the idea is this. As we become familiar with listening to the Spirit as kind of a weekly rhythm, we'll also find ourselves being more adept at hearing the Spirit in real time as we meet friends, family, acquaintances who want to know more about this intriguing hope that is within us. We all know that we've run into times where we don't know what to say on the split second there. Training ourselves to hear the Spirit will allow us to have those words and be able to speak. The fourth habit, the other L, learn. I will spend at least one period of the week learning Christ. In verses 45 and 46, Luke says, Then Jesus opened their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, This is what is written, The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Jesus was immersed in the Scriptures, and he called his followers to be immersed in them as well. If we are being sent into the world to live questionable lives, arouse curiosity, and answer people's questions about the hope that we have, we need to know more than ever what Jesus would do and say in any given circumstance. And this only comes from being totally marinated in the work and words of Jesus in the Gospels. Years ago, C.S. Lewis wrote, in the same way the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs, if they are not doing that, in all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself, are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It is even doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose. It says in the Bible that the whole universe was made for Christ and that everything is to be gathered together in Him. Now, as strange as that phrase, little Christs, may sound to our ears, what Lewis was promoting was a preoccupation with learning the example and the teachings of Jesus. We're going to need that if we want to speak about Jesus with energy and passion, with reverence and awe. 
with delight and wonder. Final habit, number five, has to do with identifying ourselves as missionaries. So the word here is sent, sent. Habit five proposes that I journal throughout the week all the ways I alerted others to the universal reign of God in Christ. This idea of journaling helps us to see patterns of how God has been working in our lives and how even some of the everythings we do, acts of kindness and service, these things can be seen as legitimate missional acts that reflect the character of Jesus. It's important for you and I as followers of Christ to understand that just like those first followers of Jesus, you and I are now not fundamentally church members, but missionaries to our culture. And we're being sent by the Holy Spirit to share the light and love of Christ, all the while being enthused and animated by Jesus' pattern of life and the habits that he taught us. In Luke 24, verses 47 through 48, Jesus gives his followers their great commission. He says, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. It's interesting to me that in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, Jesus' ascension and great commission are always found together. The ascension signals the completion of Jesus' sacrifice for sin, which includes his death, his descent into hell, and his resurrection. But it also marks his return to the Father, where he begins his season of watch care over us in heaven as we live and we witness to him and his grace in our lives. Last week, you may remember how Pastor Richard spoke to us about that phrase in the Apostles' Creed where it says that Jesus descended into hell, right? And he shared what it must have felt like for Jesus to have been separated from his Father's love. On the cross before he died, Jesus, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then for three days after his death, he spent, he spent that time in the pit of hell. It's hard to think about the excruciating pain and abandonment he must have felt so far from his father's love. But can you imagine what it would have looked like, what it did look like, when he was reunited with his father in heaven, when once again they were able to feel one another's embrace after being separated for so long? I am the oldest of 15 grandchildren. The two youngest of my cousins are twin boys, Matthew and Mark. They were adopted by one of my aunts and uncles as infants. One of them, Mark, entered the army after high school and was deployed in Iraq as a military police officer. In 2003, after his last active duty tour in Iraq, Mark flew back to our hometown of Greensboro, North Carolina. Several of the members of our family gathered inside the airport terminal to greet him that day. His parents and a multitude of aunts and uncles, cousins, I don't think any great-grandchildren had come along at that point. Uh, actually, they had. My two boys, they were there. And all of us had little signs and American flags uh, to wave at him when he came. 
And among that group of family who had gathered that day was my grandmother who was there too. My grandfather had passed away. My grandmother was frail and uh, she was wheelchair bound. So after a while, we saw Mark coming through the terminal at a distance, desert colored shirt and shorts with a huge camo pack on his back. Uh, And then he saw us and he dropped his pack and he started running. The family started crying and erupting into cheers. Everyone else in the terminal, they stopped what they were doing and where they were going. A group of flight attendants burst into tears. All this stuff was going on, and there Mark ran right up to all of us, and he fell face first into the trembling, outstretched arms of my grandmother. Never asked him about the horrors he must have experienced in that war zone during his time away from his family. As you know, most of these guys don't really speak a lot about these things. But as he was leaning over into my grandmother's feeble embrace, he said something to her, something that I nor any of the rest of us could, could detect because of all the cheering and the crying and all this kind of stuff. He said something to her, and I don't want to put words in his mouth or thoughts in his head, but surely it must have sounded something like this. The hell is over. It is finished. I am home. I think what Mark was feeling that day had to be something close to what God the Son must have felt when he ascended into heaven and to his Father's embrace. Can you imagine that homecoming? Surely everything in heaven must have stopped that day. If thousands, if not millions, or billions of angels gathered around to watch the sing, and they were crying and they were singing and praising God. And God the Son was embraced by God the Father. And they held one another once again. And I can hear the whisper of the Son into the Father's ear. The hell is over. It is finished. I am home. He ascended into heaven. With that, Jesus finished his earthly work and laid the foundation of the work of the Spirit to come in the age of the church. And that is where you and I live now. And this call of the Spirit to all of us today is this to lead the kinds of lives that will evoke questions from those whom God places in our lives so that opportunities to share about the hope that is within us may abound even more every day. Please join me in prayer. Ascended Lord Jesus, we marvel once again today at who you are. And we thank you that you came in human form and lived on earth just as we live. And we know that we should be happy that you have reunited with your Father in heaven. But the truth of the matter is we feel sad sometimes because we can no longer walk and talk with you in human form. Sometimes we yearn and ache to actually touch you, just to ask you a question and to hear an answer in our ears. We're to see your faith with our eyes. 
So we look forward to the day when all of these things shall be so. A day when we shall no longer see through a glass dimly. Until then, may we receive the empowering promise of your Holy Spirit so that we may be your witnesses in our own families and communities and all over the earth. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Do you need prayer for something or someone in your life? First Presbyterian Church offers a prayer service each Tuesday evening at 7 o'clock. Our prayer ministers will quietly intercede for you or anyone you're representing who needs prayer.